And now, our feature presentation. Scott Gardner and I became friends, and he invited me on back to the bins, and I haven't left ever since. <laughs> so, you know, it's whatever it is, a hundred and something episodes later now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's the, the the podcasting bug bit me, and, and it's hard to let it go once you really start. It's, 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 it's addicting. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, <clears throat> there, there have been times, you know, I just go a stretch where I can't, get a chance to sit down and record to somebody and it's like something builds up and you like you're gonna you're gonna pop if you don't get a microphone in front of you soon. <laughs> yeah i've kind of started in general yeah, yeah uh, I, I, I like the format i love getting those old stories out there again you know chase and i did an episode years ago it was a like a tales from the quarter bin we each like grabbed a few random comics from a quarter bin and made the other person review them like, mm. it just kind of feels like i feel like i want to do another one of those <laughs> one of these days well, if I can you know, find a shop that still has a quarter bin, you you, you know <laughs> there's, there's a shop not too far from me. I'm I'm in Long Island, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a shop in in the, the end of Queens, close to Long Island, kind of almost like on the border. Uh, and they they have bins there where books are priced, however they're priced, three four dollars. Mm-hmm. But the standard is if you buy ten books, they're a dollar each. Oh, that's so great. I don't, so I don't think anybody pays the three four dollars, and the three four dollars is ridiculous for some of the books that they have it mm-hmm. on. Uh, but then they ran right around New Year's. They ran a sale where the books in those bins were twenty-five cents each. Cool. So, yeah. so I went down there and I walked out with I think like one hundred and sixty <laughs> books. <laughs> that's that's exactly what would happen to me. And Aaron would just start rolling her eyes, asking where we're going to put them. <laughs> that's the hassle. <laughs> that's, and it's a fair. And it's sure a fair. It's more than anything else. I mean, when you can find twenty-five cent bins, it's not the cost. Yeah, that's that's where the impulse control goes away entirely it's like if this looks even vaguely interesting i'll pay 25 cents for it exactly <laughs> exactly there's there's no reason to hold back on it and uh yeah. it, it's funny because i had killed that that aspect of my collecting gene but it's clear to me that that it is an addiction and we are never cured we are only recovering it's like being an alcoholic <laughs> yeah i'm not even recovering yeah <laughs> Back to the bin. Whenever I hear somebody say, I have too many books, I say, no, you just don't have enough space. (laughs) There's no such thing as too many books. So let me, let me, uh, actually, let me open this thing up. uh, Yeah. Because otherwise we'll just go on. Talking and talking, and we'll never actually get to the show. So let me uh, say, hey, everybody, welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by the host of All New Showcase, formerly Two in One Showcase, Mr. Blake PT. Uh, thank you, Paul. Well, uh, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, it's nice to to sit down and, and, and have a, a chat about some older comics for a change. Uh, mostly we talk about the newer stuff. Uh, on our shows, so this this is a nice little change of pace for me. Well, let me throw out to you first first thing, just out of curiosity, what got you into podcasting initially? Um, you know, it's it was actually uh, as a listener, or as a uh, as a podcaster. Well, I mean, you, I, obviously, you, you I guess you listened first. But yeah, yeah. I, I is, there, is there like one show that inspired you to do it, or it was uh, it was actually you know back in the day, a uh, long time ago when I first started the show. Uh, I was doing it with with my uh, my own buddy Chase Buzagard, and it was actually his idea. He approached me about doing it, and and I listened to podcasts. I knew what they were, 
and he kind of pitched me on the idea of two guys sitting around and talking about you know their their favorite comic books uh, once a week. So he and I—it's the kind of conversations we had all the time anyway. So we just figured we'd put down a microphone and uh, and try it that way, and it kind of branched out. You know, Chase had to uh, had to retire from the show uh, a couple years in, and I sort of took over uh, as the uh, he called me the torchbearer back then when I started. Mm. Uh, and, and I just kind of have kept it going since then. And the show's evolved. It's changed. You know, back then we did talk a lot more about old comics. Uh, these days, uh, just format changes and my various, you know, rotating co-hosts, it's easier to talk about the, uh, the newer stuff a lot of the time. And, and from there I've tried a, a few other things. I've actually done a couple of, uh, of podcast novels, you know, audio books, uh, that, that I enjoy doing a lot, but it's really, really time consuming. It's, I mean, as much time as it takes to do a podcast, doing a, an audio book recording, it's like 10 times as much. Wow. So I haven't done, I, there's, there's several more stories I would love to do that with, but I just have not been able to find the time. Yeah. Well, you, you know, on, on top of everything else, uh, again, being Facebook friends, uh, I'm totally familiar with the fact that you are a newlywed and, uh, yeah, that takes up some of your time too. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, the, one of the good things is that my my wife is is also uh, a bit of a geek. She indulges a lot of my my geekdoms, and she is uh, actually she has become the most frequent of my my rotating co-hosts uh, on the podcast. She uh, she reads a, a good amount of comics, and and she watches tons of movies and reads tons of books. So and she's my jealousy got a lot. of Erin uh, came when she was able to be an extra in Dark Knight Rises. Oh yes, yeah, that was that was a, an epic weekend for her it was uh we we actually had a, a a good episode of the show after that happened i got her on and she talked about uh everything or all of her experiences on the movie set and right what she was able to talk about uh, what she at, was after yeah. signing the uh confidentiality agreement right right and we we did that you know right after she filmed it long before uh long before the movie came out and and, and in fact i mean she didn't even know all of the the context of the scene i mean she knew something she knew more than than uh, other people would going in, but even then she didn't know, you know, the specifics. So there was a plenty, uh, plenty of surprise left for her when she, when she actually saw the movie. Mm. We keep yeah. saying one of these days we're gonna, uh, you know, get out, get out the Blu-ray and, uh, and just start, you know, freeze framing those scenes uh, in the in the football stadium and try to like play Where's Waldo, see if we can find her. <laughs> was she was she down low enough that you think you might be able to? Uh, she, she could tell you. I think she was uh, a little more higher up, but uh, some of those scenes you know, they. Some of those scenes, like for example, where the, uh, the the guards were coming through with the the guns, she was uh, near some of those guys. So it, it, we think it's possible. You know, if we look hard enough, we might be able to pick her out. Yeah, that would be very cool, actually. I I, really uh, I was I've been at a couple of scenes being filmed for different movies, but I was never an extra, or you know, never had a chance of actually being you know on camera for any of them. But I think that would be really cool to be yeah. you know immortalized that way. Is even though she's one of thousands, it's still. Oh yeah, yeah. Still her in there. Absolutely. I I feel the same way. It's weird. I live, you know, where she uh she used to live in Pittsburgh. That's how she got got that gig. And now uh, since she got we got married, she moved down here to uh to New Orleans where I live and they film so many movies here. Uh you think it'd be easy to just you kind of walk in and and become an extra, but I've never quite had the uh, the opportunity myself uh to do that even though it's something I I would love to love to do one of these days. Yeah, over the over the years, I mean, they film a fair number of things in the New York area, as yeah. you'd, oh, I'm, you know, you'd I'm, guess. I can imagine. <laughs> and and like I said, I've gone to, I've been on locations where they were filming things on numerous occasions, but never a situation where I could get onto camera for any reason. Yeah. 
Erin actually uh, she works uh, she works at Old Navy now, and uh, the uh, the clothing director or, or whatever it is for uh, for NCIS New Orleans came into her store a couple of weeks ago and and dropped uh, just a ton of money on on outfits for the show. So she's she's kind of got a backdoor into uh, into that side of the business too. No, that's pretty cool. Yeah, she's tell people she's costuming and uh, Scott Bakula. <laughs> How many of us get to say that? <laughs> well, that makes one that I know of. <laughs> So, uh, what are you reading lately? I, you know, I read a, a ton of stuff. Um, I, I'm always been more of a DC guy, uh, just in general. So I, I'm still reading. I, I read any Superman book I'm going to read. You know, any of the Justice League books. Um, Marvel is. I'm a more uh, writer oriented. There, there's certain writers I'll read. I've really been enjoying what uh, what Jonathan Hickman did with uh, with Avengers, and I'm looking forward to Secret War. I'm really enjoying uh, you know Dan Slott's. Uh, Spider-Man, the whole Spider-Verse storyline. I think part of it is I like a multiverse story. Mm. Maybe that comes from being more of a DC guy, because you know historically they've done a lot more with it. Uh, but those those are two things that have really appealed to me. Uh, I've been really happy that that Valiant Comics has come back in such a big way. I think uh, their Rye is, is is a really great book. You know the the return of Quantum and Woody and uh, and Archer and Armstrong. I've enjoyed all of that stuff. So I've got a lot of a lot of different things that I'm dipping my fingers in these days. See, I, I keep hearing a lot of things about Valiant, and I keep saying I got to get to that, and it's just one of the, one of the many mm-hmm. things that I got to get to, and hopefully one day I will. Yeah. Um, Did you um, ever read any of the uh, the old Valiant stuff from the nineties? Not really. I mean, I, we we just I was just uh, I just guested on an episode of the Quarterbin podcast where we uh, the topic was basically the nineties comics boom and economics in comics. Uh, that show is done by Alan Middleton, who's a uh, an economics professor. Uh, so we, we we were going over all of that, and and as the issue that we focused on was uh, Torak Dinosaur Hunter number one. Right, right. Because that that's a book that is often cited when people talk about the '90s and the crash of the comic book yeah. market. So I think I think it gets cited. Yeah, I think it gets cited because it was one of the big uh, big guilty members of the whole variant cover craze that that eventually kind of popped because it was one of the uh one of the early chromium covers they called it and one one of the biggest selling at the time but i think i think he said uh, when he looked it up it was number five or number six for the year yeah it was an yeah it was enormous enormous sales um but but to to their credit the valiant stuff even though they did succumb to the gimmick cover craze most of their stories, uh, at least until they were brought out by acclaim, most of their stories were actually really good, even when they had the fleshy covers on them. Yeah, as as much as that issue is criticized, I thought it was a pretty solid story. I, you know, we we reviewed it it's the first time I ever yeah. read it actually, and then we went through it uh, basically, you know, the whole book, and and I, I thought it was pretty solid. And yeah, if it, if it wasn't a matter of the hype, it probably would have been much better, you know, much much better received ultimately. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. But I find I find that being a little bit older than most of the guys who I podcast with, uh, I have a different experience because you know I I started collecting comics in the '70s when most of the people I'm I'm, I'm dealing with were being born, uh, so I was I came in while while Marvel was really just changing the way the industry was working as far as how books were being written, you know, with the, the whole Bronze Age as as they were uh, developing it. So to me, Marvel was everything back then, and it took a while for me to get into DC, whereas most of the people I talked to started collecting sometime in the 80s, around Crisis or so. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that's that's the time period where, where I came in, too. Yeah, so, the, so those people are all hooked on DC, you know? 
Yeah, I don't know that it was Crisis so much for me. I think part of it was when I when I started reading comics. I actually started reading uh, a guy my dad worked with had some old Archie comics. His kid didn't want anymore, so they passed them on to me. Um, and then one of my uncles uh, got wind that I was I was reading comics, and he gave me some of his old ones. And his his old ones were all uh, uh, Green Lantern and Legion of Superheroes. And mm. those those were my first superhero books, and I think it's it's one of those things. It's like your your first love; you never quite forget it. And I've always been big fans of of those two properties in particular. And from there, it just kind of spread out to the to the rest of the DCU. Well, I, the study I heard about said that if you take the things that you were into when you were, I think it's like between the ages of twelve and fourteen, mm-hmm. the comic books, the music, the movies. That's when you're really forming your opinions for your life, and those are often the ones that you're nostalgic about and that you look back on most fondly and that you like the most in hindsight. That I think makes absolute 100% perfect sense. Uh, you're just thinking about the stuff that that excites me these days. It is the stuff that kind of kind of harkens back to to what I was reading uh, reading at the time. Even uh, even the book that I, I picked to to discuss. Uh, to discuss for this episode, if I if I remember correctly, I think it came out uh, in 1990, uh, which would have put, put me uh, 13 years old uh, when I when I read it first. Yeah, 1990. I was double checking there, so <laughs> so yeah, I was right in that right in that ballpark. Right. Yeah. So it's it's right right in your heyday. Yeah. Which and it's funny. The first time I was on this show, the book I picked was probably probably came out when I was about 13 years old, because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's that's that's the uh, the sweet zone. It is. It absolutely is. But uh, just just to get to that, uh, by chance, you know, not not we didn't we didn't have a plan to do this, but Blake told me his book, and uh, he picked a book authored by Keith Giffen. So we we ended up uh, making this a Keith Giffen focus episode because uh, I decided to pick a book by Keith Giffen as well. Uh, and I can remember, and I guess it would be before your time, kind of, but when Giffen first broke into the uh, industry or at least my first experience with him, was somewhere around the late 40s, early 50s issues of The Defenders. And he came in as an artist at that time. And I I recall being impressed with him that I thought he was going to be similar in style style to somebody such as like John Byrne. Uh, And then he went on to Legion of Superheroes, where he really kind of made his name as an artist, I thought. And I thought that was it until he all of a sudden just became a big time writer instead. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. That that five year later era uh, of the Legion, uh, it, that that's one of those those time periods that that I remember very very strongly. Uh, going back and looking at that, it, and he's he's the he's the sort of guy he never stopped uh, doing art, but I and I think he he's probably one of the more solid just artistic storytellers out there. But my favorite work of his is the stuff that he's written. Uh, right. Well, from from a, a an art point of view, the, I guess the thing that would be most heavily uh, cited by people would be the Great Darkness Saga with the Legion. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I love that book. That's one of my favorite stories of that uh, of that entire era. Yeah. Yeah. That that was yeah. That, I remember picking them, those up as they came out, and I was pretty riveted by them. But. Uh, when, yeah, again, we're not doing any books that he drew. Uh, when I see, every time I see anything he draws now, it always seems to be kind of that faux Jack Kirby look. You know, when he did OMAC and uh, I don't even remember what it was that he did more recently. After after OMAC, he did something else and it also um, Jack Kirby style. 
I'm trying to think. I, I, I can name a few things he's re- uh, written, but I'm not thinking of anything else he's uh, he's drawn. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs> I'm blanking yeah. on that. There was something else very recently that he was the artist on. And again, like I said, he, he did it in a very similar style to what he did on that OMAC series when the uh, New 52 first started. Yeah. It, was it was it the um, that Forever Man's book? Did he? Uh, I know he wrote that. Did he pencil it too? I'm not sure about that, but it's... Uh, what what is the the other Kirby book? The Forever People. For, Forever People. That, yeah, Infinity Man and the Forever People. That's, that's what I was. Yeah, I think that's that, what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's I didn't I didn't pick that one up just because that's that was a, a group that never had a huge draw for me. The uh, the Forever People and you got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, well I'm I'm I am a, an admitted Kirby addict, mm-hmm. uh, and and I can't say I've read everything, but everything I read I love with Kirby, and and it's one of these things where. The older I got, the more I appreciated him, because oh, some yeah, of his I, stuff was so far out that when I was a kid, I didn't quite get it. Yeah, I completely understand that. Yeah, but now, now I, I read some of it, and it, yeah, it is far out, and it, it, it you know, but but it's fun. And we we recently did not too long ago, uh, Black Panther number one from nineteen seventy seven. And and it's just a fun story. Really has very very little to do with the Black Panther as we know and love him, but uh, but just a fun story. And and I'm I'm all about that lately. Just the more fun it is, the the more I enjoy it. And I think that leads us back to Keith Giffen. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because because that seems to be his total goal with these books is just to put together fun stuff. Yeah, and and it's some of it uh, some of it is is just kind of laugh out loud hysterical. Some of it is maybe. Uh, has a more of a serious tone, but it's it's not necessarily something that's going to be uh, you know depressing or maudlin or gritty. Uh, even that Larfley series that he wrote uh, for for twelve issues, I thought that was a, a really fun little book uh, with a with a weird weird character that's hard to make into a into a protagonist. But I thought he did a very good job with it. Right, right. Well, I mean, the two books we picked, I think there's a different tone in each of them. In mine, I think he was going more directly out for comedy. Mm-hmm. Whereas in yours, he wanted to give. I, I think he was he was he was more subtle in yours. He, yeah, he tried to tell a story with some humor in it, but legitimately was trying to tell a story. Whereas in my book, I think the story is just kind of something he had to do to get the humor out. Yeah, I, I think I I think I agree with you there. I think you have a definite point. We might as well jump into him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, normally, normally we do Marvel then DC. But sometimes we go in age order, the older book than the newer book. You do have the older book, you have the DC, and you're the guest. So I give you the total call on whether you want to do your book first or mine. Uh, okay, um, I, I guess I can uh, go first. I don't mind. Uh, yeah, the book, uh, I've been kind of dancing around saying the, <laughs> the name of it. Uh, again, it's from, from 1990. It's uh, Justice League Quarterly, number one, uh, written by Giffen and his, his collaborator on that era, of the Justice League, uh, J.M. DeMatteis, uh, with art by by Chris Sprouse, um, and, and eighty page giant, and Sprouse penciled the whole thing. It makes me wonder uh, how long of a, a head start did he get, or was this just an era where artists could do more than five pages a month? Uh, I have to question that. Just I, I, I'm thinking a little bit of both. Yeah, because I, I, I think I, back then they could get away with doing a little less detail and mm-hmm. and I think there was two reasons for that. I think the st- just the style of the day was a little bit looser, but I also think they were less into the I need this back so that I could sell the individual pages. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right. Which is funny cuz these days more and more of them are going going digital so there's no original pages to sell anyway. Uh, True. Yeah. So so in this book, this was uh towards towards the uh the end 
of their Justice League run, where they had the, uh, of course, the Justice League International, the Justice League uh, America, Justice League Europe uh, era of the the series. And it's funny that you said that this is maybe a little less of the the slapstick uh, out of the the two books. It, it absolutely is. But that's kind of what everybody remembers this era for. They they think of it as the the funny Justice League. And like the yeah, it, Bwahaha Justice the Bwahaha Justice League, and it absolutely is. And this book is is a part of that run, but it does bring in some some interesting, deeper kind of themes that I don't think people necessarily would have uh, have immediately associated with them. So uh, a little backstory here: this is the era where the Justice League was uh, chartered by the United Nations. They had embassies around the world, uh, including the uh, the Justice League America embassy in New York, where the, the League of the Day was was headed up by their liaison, Maxwell Lord, long before he became mysteriously evil. Uh, and in this, this first, uh, as the book begins, we see Max and his little robot butler buddy, Elron, discussing uh, Booster Gold, who recently left the team, and is now uh, having conversations with some... Uh, some unusual individuals, some people that Max doesn't recognize most of them. Uh, it, so, and uh, they, they've kind of been followed around. They've got photographs of them. He, they're trying to figure out who are these people? Why are they talking uh, Talking to them? Well, it doesn't take them very long to find out. Uh, we see a few days later, uh, Claire Montgomery, kind of taking Max's role here, uh, is, is talking to a group of investors from various companies throughout the DC Universe, LexCorp, Ferris Aircraft, Star Labs, uh, and a bunch of others. And they assembled these investors together to help pay for and sponsor the new superhero team, The Conglomerate, led by Booster Gold uh, with with, uh, some some other familiar members. Gypsy from the Detroit era, Justice League, is a member of this team. Uh, Reverb, who is the little brother of Vibe, who at this time was dead from that era, uh, of the Justice League as well, and then a few other characters, uh, uh, Praxis and uh, Echo, Vapor, uh, Multiman, characters that are even more obscure than the Detroit League could have been. They're all there, and they've become, they're this new team that's going to go out there, and they're going to take on the world. They're, you know, even that they've got corporate sponsorship, but they're going to be autonomous. Uh, then again, uh, they, they immediately are approached by uh, by Claire's associate, Mr. Mr. Thrunctious, and I, I have to read that name like three or four times to make sure I'm saying it right. Thrunctious. They might as well have called him Captain Bad Guy. Uh, well, as, as as an English teacher, right? You you teach English? Yes, yes, I do. Okay. Is Thrunctious? Is there a, a definition for that? I, I don't think so. It just it's a very sinister sounding word to me. I'm not sure why. Okay. It's just a, I, yeah, a phonetic that's thing. what I thought as well. But I thought maybe you might have some more insight than me. <laughs> no, no. It's just a, it's purely a phonetic thing. Uh, so anyway, the, the, they're sponsoring this new team that's going to go out and take on the world. Well, one of the sponsors, Dupree Chemical, almost immediately comes under attack by this this guy who's uh, he's not a supervillain. He's not walking around in costume or anything. He's just kind of wandering around, talking to himself, talking about payback, uh, and, and using his mysterious powers to cause uh, accidents here at the chemical plant. Well, the Justice League shows up to to take him down. This is, of course, again the, uh, the the era of the Justice League America with Fire and Ice, the Blue Beetle, uh, Guy Gardner as Green Lantern, and they rush in to take out this guy. But they're um, almost immediately interrupted by the appearance of the conglomerate making their big public debut, 
to to capture this this guy. And of course, it's a clash of wills here. Booster and Beetle, everybody knows them. They are like the best friends. They're the, the Bert and Ernie of the superhero set. But at this point, they've had some sort of a, a conflict. They're angry at each other. The fact that Booster's walking around with a, a new team just makes it even worse. Uh, tempers are flared. And the, uh, they, the conglomerate winds up letting this guy, he, he kind of slips through. He gets into the, uh, the offices of Dupree Oil. And it's, it's Praxis from the conglomerate who gets in there and stops him before he can start killing people. So it's the big auspicious debut for the conglomerate. They have saved the day. They have trumped the Justice League. They've caught their first villain. And, of course, this doesn't go over very well with the League at all. Uh, we see Beetle not long after this sitting there watching. Everything on TV is about the conglomerate. They're going on talk shows. They're, they're on the news. They've got big Hollywood gala out there to to trumpet their arrival and then just to add a little bit of insult to injury max comes in and he's got their their new corporate uh, portfolio where it's announced that anybody can sponsor the conglomerate can be uh, a, a charter sponsor of this team for for the low low price of only fifty dollars they can they too can be a part of protecting america's interests yeah well this is this is the ideal of course this is what booster and, and all these other characters expected when they signed up for it but they soon find out that this is not exactly how it's going to work they're stuck on the sidelines for for quite some time they don't get to go out and fight again they're stuck doing you know corporate uh, parties fundraisers they're stuck you know, doing magazine covers and uh and talk shows which i'm sure to many people sounds like a wonderful life and get forced to go out and do super, stupid superhero tricks on letterman as Booster has to do at one point. But to them, it's like, well, this is not what we signed up for. This is We wanted to be heroes. We wanted to, to get out there and fight the good fight. So finally, Claire comes up to him with a mission. Turns out there's this little tin pot dictator somewhere in South America who, who's got his country uh, in, in an iron fist, and the conglomerate goes in and deposes him, takes him out, saves the little country of San Sabor from... The, the, the dictator El Fajita. Again, one of those names that only Giffen and Dimateus could have written with a straight face. Uh, they, they take him out, and yay, yay for them. The United Nations, on the other hand, has a very different feeling about this. They're not too keen that a corporate-sponsored superhero group has gone and overthrown the government of another nation, no matter what that nation is. Uh, so they send their team, the Justice League, in to go and try to uh, take care of business, to try to straighten things out before this goes too far. Well, again, once again, you have that clash of, uh, of personality. Nobody really wants to fight here. You know, the League, Booster was one of them. Even if they're mad at each other, there's still that, that undercurrent of friendship there. But at the same time, they have, they have kind of over, uh, overstepped the line. And this is one of those first points when I was rereading this. Cause it, it's been several years since I read this book. When I was rereading it uh, in, in preparation for this episode, that's when it started to to really hit me that they, they weren't just trying to be funny with this book. They really were hitting on some of those topics that people always talk about with superhero comics. You know, why doesn't Superman just go in and get rid of Hitler in World War II? Right. Stuff like that. Here, here they actually kind of tackle some of these ideas as to, to maybe why it wouldn't be such a simple thing to just go in and, and fix things the way that you would expect somebody with all this power to do. Um, so, again, they, they get stuck in this sort of holding pattern, the conglomerate, where they, they can't seem to, they, to get 
a decent uh, assignment here from their their corporate uh, sponsors. In fact, it starts to become clear that a lot of the uh, the jobs that they're being offered may not necessarily be so much for the greater good as for protecting the interests of their uh, of their corporate sponsors. In fact, they even find out even El Fajita, his country, was sitting on a, a bunch of uh, facilities for one of the companies that sponsors them. So even then, even their big win, turns out, may not have really been all that great. So they're turning down assignments left and right. They're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to just be corporate shills. And of course, you know, this up- upsets the integrity of some of their sponsors, like LexCorp, for example. Uh, and they start walking out. So the conglomerate's losing their funding now. And Mr. Thrunctious is looking for a way out. He's trying to figure out some way to, to solve this little problem. And uh, his his friend, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment, I'm not sure if he even says it, suggests that they uh, solve the problem with, and I quote here, our friend in the basement. Nice, ominous little bit of foreboding there. Well, the conglomerate finally takes on a job. There's an oil spill. They're going to go out and, and clean up. Um, and it's supposed to be this big PR thing because Ovel Oil, it's one of their sponsors. You know, they're taking care of their own mess. They're, they're solving it. But instead, it Booster kind of uh, kind of loses it on the news, uh, very much puts the blame for the whole thing on Ovel. Uh, and this, of course, is not going to make him happy at all. So Mr. Thrunctious, we see him down in the basement with their friend, uh, this this enormous creature in kind of in silhouette, and uh, old friend of ours is there to help him out, help him control whoever this is, Hector Hammond, the uh, the Justice League's uh, well the, the the Green Lantern villain, I should say Hector Hammond, uh, telepathic guy, little midget dude with an enormous head. Uh, you've probably all see, you saw him certainly if you saw the Green Lantern movie, he was in it, kind of sort of like everything else in the Green Lantern movie. <laughs> Uh, if you don't read the comics, you might recognize him from there. So Hector and Mr. Thrunctious are going to send out their, their buddy in the basement to take care of business. The plan is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set out some sort of a, a disaster, some sort of a chemical cloud sort of thing that we're going to send the conglomerate to try to uh, to try to stop. Something's going to go wrong, and the whole team will be destroyed Uh, and then while the nation is in mourning we're going to send out our new friend our new hero who is completely under our control to take care of business well the conglomerate of course has no idea that any of this is going on all they know is that they're losing money left and right because their sponsors keep walking out on them and uh, they they also at the same time are not getting a chance to do what they wanted to do so claire sucks it up goes to Maxwell Lord and decides they, they want to try to affiliate themselves with the Justice League in order to stay in business. And here's where we find out that Max and Claire apparently uh, are ex-husband and ex-wife, which somehow just seems absolutely perfect for the two of them. Uh, I don't know if they ever did a lot more with the, that Claire Montgomery character, uh, certainly you know not after Max Lord went evil, but I would have loved to have seen a few more stories about that because it was a really good dynamic, a really good relationship. So the League and the, the conglomerate are coming together. They're going to work together now. Cut to Belrev Prison, where we see our friend from their first adventure back at Dupree Chemical, that, that mysterious little guy who was talking to himself. Well, he's sitting in jail now, and he's talking to himself again. Suddenly, he starts hearing that those voices in his head, they're talking back, and it turns out it's his brother, and his brother is alive. This is when, of course, the, uh, the conglomerate gets the call, the gas cloud that they need to stop. 
they uh, they're ready to go out. The league's going with them, and Mr. Thrunctious and Hector have un- decanted their friend in the basement. This enormous guy, one half of his body has been horrendously mutated. He's the guy who's going to to save the day. Well, while the league and the conglomerate are on their way out, you know, Booster and Beetle have a little heart to heart. They make up. They get out there in time to to take care of the threat very easily. When you've got a Green Lantern on your team uh, and a Flash, a gas cloud's really not a huge problem. Uh, so Thrunctious just completely loses it. Forget about trying to kill these guys and then sending our guy in as the hero. He's just going to go out there and destroy them. Uh, the, the enormous half-man goes out, starts belching toxic waste everywhere. The League and the conglomerate are, are both trying to take him on. Uh, things are not going particularly well for them. All of a sudden, it's our buddy from Bell Rev. He's busted out. He's looking for him. He, and he, he announces what I think most everybody else reading this book probably figured out about 30 pages ago. The guy from the basement is his brother. It's his missing brother. The accident that, that gave both of them their powers has apparently uh, give, caused some sort of psychic connection between the two of them. They come together. They're together again like they wanted to be. There's an enormous explosion. Mr. Thrunctious is vaporized because when your name is Thrunctious, that's really the best possible ending you could hope for. <laughs> and uh, and in the end of the book, we see uh, Claire returning to their corporate sponsors and, and basically kind of laying down the law. They say, look, if you guys still want to be involved, you can, but we will be completely autonomous. We're not going to answer to anybody. We're going to do what's right for us. Uh, and at the end, there's there's kind of a little ambiguity left there as to whether they're uh, going to remain uh, their own thing or whether they're going to going to stick with the uh, the league. Uh, the the hatchet seems to have been buried, but it's a, a very different. It's a very new dynamic uh, at the end of the story. So that's. That's the the rundown. That's what happened here. Uh, it's it's a book that I remember very very fondly when I read it uh, when I was a kid, and it's been a while. So it was it was fun to go back and look at it again. And looking at it from a, an older perspective, I'm seeing things like I said before, that whole thing about the corporate sponsorship and uh, and why superheroes don't just meddle in international affairs. It, it's the sort of stuff that I never would have thought about at the time, but now it it gives a different angle to the book, and it's one that I actually really really enjoy i i agree um i never read this before i read this specifically because you said you wanted to cover it today and uh and, and i read it to, to to be prepared to talk about it uh I'm, i mean i'm somewhat familiar with the Bwahaha justice league but i haven't read all their issues uh and and i expected it to be a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than it is and i was happily surprised to find out that it wasn't I, I thought there were some good themes in here. I think the right writing wise, I really have very, very little criticism of the story at all. We'll talk about oh, yeah, the art. We'll talk about the art in a moment. <laughs> uh, and even that, I'm not saying the art's terrible. I, I, I'll put that out front. But the uh, the the way that that he, they explore not only the superheroes getting involved in political struggles, but the superheroes being corporately sponsored. I think those are great concepts, and they've been hit upon in other books. But, sure, sure. Uh, but I thought this one really, you know, hit the right note for it, and it it, it opened the door to some interesting, you know, just thought provoking uh, material. Especially, like you say, the the whole the whole thing with superheroes getting involved in in the political struggles, and and you know the the whole does does might make right basically, and just because their intentions are good, does that give them the right to do whatever they think is right? Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's the sort of thing that whenever somebody tries to do it on a large scale, 
I think they they trying to try to step up and make it seem like well here's something that's never been done before. Especially you know the the public at large maybe is not aware of stories like this. I, I remember I think it was last year when when Marvel relaunched X Factor as all new X Factor. That was the big selling point. Corporate superheroes, corporate sponsorship, it's never been done. But right off the top of my head, I thought of a half dozen stories where it had been done, and, and this was the first one mm-hmm. that came And to this mind. is 25 years earlier. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. There's just different ways to, uh, to approach it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the reality of it at this point. Uh, if anything new is going to come up in comics it's going to be because there's something new in the world that's occurring that just hadn't been addressed by comics before. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't think there are any new themes that, that they haven't thought of in the 75 years that they've been writing these books. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah. But, you know, well, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, now, you're familiar with them at this era? Cause, with like what? I had the, the whole Justice League at this era. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'm not was... – I wasn't too up on it. Yeah, this when I when I really started reading DC heavily, this was uh, the league of the time, and uh, I eventually uh, through you know back issues I went out and I managed to find them all. So I have got the uh, pretty much this entire era. Uh, it's it's one I'm really familiar with. Uh, it's actually it, it's actually one we mentioned my my wife Erin before. She's uh, a fan of these books too. She and I have uh, have talked about them uh, several times. She's fans of these characters and these versions of the characters. Now, where did where did they go with the conglomerate after this? Did they the conglomerate, uh, like I said, this was kind of towards the end of the uh, the, the Giffen D. Mateus run, uh, and and not long after this, they went through a storyline where the that version of the league kind of was uh, kind of dismantled, kind of taken apart, uh, and and conglomerate just kind of sort of went away after a while. Um, they, they, I know some of the characters made uh, appearances here and there after that, but it was not a, a book. Uh, it was not a team that that really spun out, and they did a whole lot with after that, uh, which which is a shame. I think there there was some uh, potential there to uh, to tell some interesting stories. Uh, and I, I'm just, yeah, I mean, this is a very minor point, but I'm just curious if the robot servant Elron is that anything to do with Elron Hubbard or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if, if it, it might have been a an, an intentional dig at Elron Hubbard. I I'm not 100 sure about that. That was kind of the naming convention. He he had previously been a, a servant for an alien uh, invader that they, they fought who wound up kind of switching allegiance and, and uh, following around, joining up with, uh, with, uh, with Max. But they all had names like that, you know, letter and syllable. Uh, so see. it's... Maybe, yeah. maybe a little R2-D2 type action there. Kind of, yeah. yeah. But, in, but, fact, in, in fact, way back in the day when, uh, when Tim Burton was doing his... Uh, Superman movie, uh, and Kevin Smith actually had, had written the uh, the script. Uh, Elron was actually in that uh, in that version of it. Okay, that I was I, I was unaware of that. Yeah, that, that yeah, script has kind of been made public though, right? Uh, it's yeah. I mean that's that's how I read it. It's 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 out there. It's available there. It's I don't know if Drew's scriptorama is still a thing, but I think that's where I read it back in the day. So I guess uh, time to discuss the art a little bit. Yeah, uh, it's not that I think the art is bad because I don't. But it, I don't think the art reaches the level that the story does. I, like I said, I think the story is really solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art-wise, uh, I think there's some points in it where the anatomy and the perspective seem to be a little off on some of the characters. Uh, the storytelling is pretty solid. But I don't think there's anything in here that's particularly dynamic as far as the layouts. And 
the artwork itself is a little just a little looser than my preferred style. Not bad, but just not what my preferred style would be. Yeah. Chris Chris Sprouse uh, did the the pencils for this book and he he was an artist that I first found through the uh, through the Legion of Superheroes. And I, I com- kind of compare this to that, and I think certainly at the time, I think he had a, a little more uh, a little more skill maybe with with younger characters. I think his Legion books looked uh, looked better than this one did, and and I agree with you. I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's it's among his best work. Um, I, I kind of have to ask kind of question, um, and I and I don't know the answer to this. I know that a lot of the times Giffen would do the uh, the layouts. For, for those books and then other pencils would come over and that's that's the reason that 52 made it um, an entire year with no fill-in artists uh, or with, without missing an issue rather because Giffen was the one doing all those layouts and I, I wonder if this was a case of that too because the credits uh, in the issue don't really don't really say uh, if, if he was involved with the art at all or if it's completely Chris Sprouse. Which is interesting because the same holds true for the issue that I'm going to cover after this. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gives the creator names, but it doesn't give any designation as to exactly what they did. Yeah, that's weird. I, I, it's Whenever I see a book that's done that way, I, I just find it very unusual. I, I question, why would, they, why would they credit it this way? Why won't they tell us who did what? Um, maybe that's the reason. Maybe they all had a hand everywhere. That might be it. That could be it. Uh, I, I thought in particular, and, and this would be more the, not so much the layouts or the general penciling, but it's probably the inking work on her. The character of Vapor, every every shot of her, she just, I don't know, like it, it almost looks almost looks a little photo referenced for some reason to me. Like it just doesn't look natural the way they draw her. Uh, I also, for different reasons, wasn't totally crazy about the way they drew Hector Hammond. He just doesn't look quite right to me. Doesn't look quite menacing enough. Yeah, he he's not particularly scary in this book. With with vapor, I think um, I, I kind of see what you're getting at with with photo reference. With me, I think it's more of a, a problem of his some of his female characters uh, aren't really distinct enough from each other. You know, it's if if vapor and gypsy weren't wearing different clothes uh, and and vapor's hair wasn't a little bit lighter, I'm not sure if I could tell the difference between them. Mm, yeah. And then the uh, the character I I, I got to give some credit to the character model on the uh, I, I, they they never really named him the giant uh, brother yeah uh, Ernie is Ernie. That, that's all they yes. ever call him <laughs> uh, I mean he he's probably between two and three times the size of a normal man mm-hmm. he's wearing a pair of tidy whities <laughs> and half of his body looks like it's made of hardened clay yeah I, I was kind of thinking that had kind of a clay face thing going on there. And and he's you know huge hugely muscular, uh, and 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 spits toxic waste. Mm-hmm. So he he's yeah. for a character that I I don't know if we ever saw again under any circumstances. Uh, I don't make an impression so. on me. What I find funny about that, and I I don't know if this is a consistency problem or if I just lost when he lost him. But there are uh, no no it's definitely a consistency problem because I'm flipping through the book now and it it kind of goes in and out. With those uh, those tidy whities, uh, you you the the human half of his body they're always there. But if you look at the clay half, sometimes they're there and sometimes they're covered up by whatever it is the clay or the scar tissue. It's like they couldn't decide if, if they wanted it to be visible there or not, and it keeps kind of going back and forth, which which is a little uh, 
disconcerting when you mm. when you realize that it's happening. And that, and that's one you know that's some a place where you got to question the art because you do look for the consistency in these sure. in these stories. Yeah, even there, that's a question of uh, I'm not even sure if it's a a problem with the the line art or the or the colorist just didn't know whether he was supposed to be filling it in or not. It, it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, and it definitely looks to be inconsistent even on, on like his chest and on his head mm-hmm. where where the the clay portion and, and I I'm, yeah. I use the term clay loosely because I'm not sure exactly what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't seem to have a, a consistent uh, you know line where it, where it comes down and it doesn't seem to be necessarily the same from one panel to the next. Right. I, I guess you know I mean I, I guess if you look closely enough, it's probably like that with the thing in the Fantastic Four. I'm sure the uh, the you know you start comparing shots, the the rocks on his body are, are different in every shot probably. Yeah, I think the best Fantastic Four artists are probably the ones that can keep it kind of consistent. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know I, I've never sat down and like looked at them side by side to see, right. but it would be interesting to know actually. Yeah, uh, the the shot which like really should be a money shot of him bursting out of the ground is one that I look at and it looks like the art's just a little too loose for me. Like if it was if it was drawn a little tighter, I think that could be a you know almost a poster type image. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for, but but it is kind of anatomically it's it's sort of weak. You got. The Martian Manhunter in the foreground, who is he's kind of being knocked backwards, but just judging from the angle, it seems like a very odd, uh, odd angle of approach for him. I'm not sure where he got hit that made him land at exactly that particular uh, particular degree. It doesn't really seem to work out. Right. Where's and it doesn't have the detail, but just uh, really catches your eye a couple of pages later when uh, the three characters kind of implode. Uh, I, I I find that to be you know very Catch uh, eye catching and and, yeah. and and almost an exciting moment in the book. It, it certainly yeah. gives the, I think it gives the impact that you want at that point. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the best panels in the book there. But uh, you know, overall, uh, like I said, I, I got to give it a it's a pretty solid uh, rating, and it, it's. I say this so often, and there's only so many hours in the day, so I don't always follow up on what I say, but it makes me want to read more of them. Yeah, and, and it's well worth reading. I think that's as much as you could ask for from a book like this. If it, if it makes you want to seek out more and sit down and read them, it's doing its job. Yeah, absolutely. And and absolutely. It, it's it's got me thinking, and you know, it's it's one of the things where where a story like this is one I would point to for people who criticize comic books as being you know a, ch- a childish art form, mm-hmm. because I do think it's thought provoking, and it's not a you know it's not a difficult read. A, you know, a twelve year old could sit down and read this fine, but there's a lot going on and a lot of things to think about. And I think yeah. that's that's a great aspect of it. And I think anytime you read something that, that makes you think beyond the box, that it's doing its job. Uh, one, yeah, absolutely agree, yeah. Now, uh, have you heard how, how we rate the books? Yeah, we uh, rate the, the, uh, the cover, the art, and the, the story, right? And then, yeah, and then just an overall yeah. kind of averaging out. Absolutely, yeah. As a teacher, I'm thinking this right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done this sort of thing before. Absolutely. Um, well, I'll, I'll cover first. Um, we didn't we didn't really discuss the cover. I actually really love the cover to this book. Um, this this was one of those iconic shots. It's uh, if you go back to the the beginning of this version of the Justice League, their their Justice League number one from 1987. They had kind of the uh, the group shot of the new team, kind of looking down on it from above, and it became one of those images that has been frequently referenced and and copied and, and homaged 
certainly any time they, they did a lineup change or anything like that or introduced a new team, in this book, they always did it. And there have been a lot of other books that have done it since then. And I've just kind of got a soft spot for that pose. <laughs> so, so in the cover here, we've got the conglomerate sort of shoving their way through uh, in and joining the Justice League. And, and I think this is some of the best uh, art Sprouse did in the book where you've got the conglomerate. They've, they've, they've got kind of smug looks on their faces. They're stepping in. Guy Gardner is, is incredibly perturbed. The Martian Manhunters looking down at Gypsy, who, you know, if, if you know these characters, they don't really reference it in the book, but there's a, a really deep connection there. And, and you can see him sort of thinking, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, Flash is asleep. I, I, I really like the cover. The, the cover I, I give an, an easy B plus to. Um, interior artwork, I agree, it's not uh, Chris Browse's best. Uh, e- even there, I would give it at least, I'd say probably a C plus for that. And the story, I really like. It's it's a very strong story uh, that that touches on a lot of things that that do have multiple layers that I didn't really consider back in the day, but but I see uh, differently now. And and to me, that's that that to me is what makes a, a true all ages story. People talk about all ages comics now, and they're usually talking about like Teen Titans Go, which yeah, it's it's okay for kids, but it's not something that I as an older person can read and appreciate to, to me a real all ages book is something that you can read at different stages in your life and get different things out of it so story i i give it an a with the story uh overall probably i say a b plus right and we're not gonna have a lot of disagreement here mm-hmm. um i really like the cover as well my favorite my favorite two things in there are the flash sleeping <laughs> and uh blue beetle actually interacting with the box the UPC would, it code, would be the yeah. UPC box, but it's the box that lists the creators. Right. He's actually got his hand on the box, and he's kind of peering out from behind it, which I, I, just, I love when they do stuff like that. I just Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just think it's great. I, I like Gypsy's look as she's looking up at the uh, Martian Manhunter because she's kind of, I guess, almost embarrassed that, you know, he's, he's giving her the dirty look like, what are you doing here? And she's looking, you know, kind of a little, uh, a little bit embarrassed that she's there and kind of rolling her eyes a little. Uh, this, this is actually the best shot of vapor. I thought, uh, yeah, I agree, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty solid, again, like you say, it's, it's the standard, uh, justice league of that era, uh, you know, all standing kind of looking at the readers in a pose. Uh, and yeah, I'd say, you know, pretty much a B plus on the cover, the interior art. I give it credit for good storytelling, good pacing, uh, I take away points for detail, and I take away points for uh, dynamism. Uh, but it's a solid story. I'm going to say a C plus. Uh, and I totally agree with you on the writing. I think it's very solid. It's thought provoking. I don't really see any significant holes in the story. Uh, and there's there's enough stuff that makes you say, well, what happens next? Uh, and you also don't feel anything lost at all about what may have happened in the past, even though you know there's clearly a lot of history here. So I'm also going to give it an A for the story, and uh, I think that basically works out probably overall to a B. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. All right, having finished with our first Keith Giffen book, time to move on to Keith Giffen number two, <laughs> and uh, I went with uh, Defenders number one. That's the Defenders mini series that Giffen did along with. DeMatteis and McGuire and uh, Sotomayor, Kevin McGuire, that is. Uh, it came out in September of 2005, so I'm breaking our rules a little because it's not quite 10 years ago. 
But, you know, I, I made the rule, so I guess yeah. I... Yeah, fudging it by a couple of months. I think that's fair. The cover images of the Defenders, uh, the four main Defenders, Doctor Strange, Submariner, the Hulk, and the Silver Surfer. And uh, Doctor Strange is front and center with his hands out as if he's casting a spell on the reader. And the Hulk is behind him, kind of oblivious to what's going on and picking his nose. Uh, while on either side of Doctor Strange is the Submariner and Silver Surfer. And you basically see right away that they're, they're a little smaller than they're normally drawn and their character models are a little different than what we're used to, but not necessarily to a negative effect. Uh, the story is titled Almost a Good Idea. It opens in Doctor Strange's Greenwich Village Sanctum. The Doctor is sleeping and someone creeps into his room and starts to choke him only to get a left in the chin, and it turns out that the intruder was Wong, Doctor Strange's manservant, who has been possessed by the villainous Nightmare, who then goes on to make fun of Strange's overly dramatic way of speaking. <laughs> he, he goes on mocking the Doctor and says how he's there to warn him that Dormammu and Umar are preparing to invade the Earth. Nightmare discusses Dormammu and Umar's plans, all the while making fun of both Strange and Wong, Nightmare admits that he's warning Strange because Dormammu has outlawed dreaming, which would destroy his purpose. While this is going on, Bruce Banner is in the desert highways of New Mexico, avoiding authorities. He's contacted by Doctor Strange in his astral consciousness and continues on with Nightmare's rant, making fun of Doctor Strange's way of speaking. Bruce doesn't want to help, but is eventually guilted into coming along. Time to visit the Submariner, who's battling some undersea baddies, and it looks like it may be a tumor, but they never actually say that it's him. Strange's astral form visits him, and the Submariner is also resistant, but Strange manipulates his arrogance to get him on board. At this point, we look in on Dormammu and Umar, and they have kind of a brother-sister-childish-type conversation and discuss their plans, ultimately with Dormammu having a bit of a tantrum at the end. Back to Strange's Sanctum, where Banner and Namor are also having an argument, including Banner referring to finding Nemo, and Namor saying if he knew what he meant, he would kill him where he stood. <laughs> Strange uh, declines to discuss his efforts to contact the Silver Surfer at this point, and basically says that he was directed to not get any of the other defenders on board. Uh, Banner and Namor continue sniping at each other, with Banner calling Namor the Little Mermaid, Namor bitch slaps him, which causes him to turn into the Hulk. Just as the two are ready to throw down, the three heroes transport to another dimension, where Doctor Strange apparently miscalculated slightly, and there's a barrier, and Strange and Submariner are on one side of it, and the Hulk is on the other side with Dormammu's mindless ones, uh, which even Strange says eventually might be able to overcome him. So he, met, he, he didn't do things quite right there. At this point, we flash back to Strange's attempt to recruit the Silver Surfer, who was actually hanging out on the beach with a bunch of surfers. But Strange stops it at that point and says he doesn't really want to discuss it. We cut back to Strange and Namor, where Dormammu teleports an army to destroy them that's bearing down on them, which is where we're told that the story is to be continued. <laughs> so this, those, those dreaded words. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? This, this was a five-issue series. I bought it you know, as it came out. Uh, I haven't read it since. I read it at the time when it came out, and this is the first time I'm picking it up. I think I might even have the trade as well. I really enjoyed it when it came out, and, and I can't say rereading it that I don't feel the same way. I needed to read this almost as if it's the same way as I would read uh, Bob Haney's work in The Brave and the Bold. 
I had to treat it as if it's another universe because these aren't the characters <laughs> the way I know them. Yeah. And they're not acting the way I know them, although they are acting as caricatures of the way I know them. Yeah, like exaggerated versions of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you don't take it, if you don't look at it as necessarily being in continuity, this is a real fun story. And I don't think anything happened in this miniseries that, that ever really had any major impacts later on down the line. So it's, it's fairly easy to, uh, to separate and just enjoy on its own merits. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's exactly the way to look at this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, clearly in the writing, they were trying for much more slapstick humor or much more snarky humor than what they were looking for in the last book. The last book, the, the humor was clearly more subtle than it was in this one. Mm -hmm. This, this one, they come right out and, you know, hit you over the head with it. But not necessarily to bad effect. Uh, I, I laughed out loud at points when when he called Namor the Little Mermaid, or Little or even Mermaid. when when he uh, said the uh, the line about finding Nemo, and, and Namor was like, "If I knew what you were talking about, I'd kill you where you stand." <laughs> I, I think those are great moments, and and they they made me laugh out loud. And frankly, I don't find myself laughing out loud over things I read very often. I find them humorous. I chuckle inside, but very rare that I laugh out loud. Uh, so to make me do that, yeah. I, I think they're really succeeding. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the the highlights. If if you can actually elicit that chuckle, uh, that that audible laugh uh, for something that is that is inaudible, that's that's not easy to do, and it's something that they absolutely deserve credit for. Yeah, I I, I re very much agree with you. And I think book. the the artistic style, which is. Uh, in this book, again, you know, the character models are a little different, particularly uh, Namor and, and the Silver Surfer, but mm -hmm. but everybody to some degree. Yeah. Uh, by Kevin McGuire. Really, yeah. I really sorry. think. Sorry. Um. Just just looking at those two, you know, I, I the reason I picked this book up in the first place is because I enjoyed this creative team on Justice League, so I wanted to see what they would do here, and and Kevin McGuire is a uh, is a longtime uh, favorite of mine. Looking at the characters, especially Namor, I, I kind of question, you know, is he, is is this like a deliberate attempt to give him more of like a swimmer's body? Is this, you know, he doesn't, a real swimmer wouldn't necessarily be, you know, super huge and bulky. You look at the guys who win at the Olympics, they don't look like bodybuilders. They, they're you know, like stretched out, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. like Michael Phelps. That, uh, that Silver, could very well be what his purpose was here. Yeah. Silver Surfer, I almost feel like he's going for a, like the cosmic hippie. He's just oh, kind of wasting away and staring off into space all the time. Yeah, no question. Because yeah. his, his the the two of them again in particular, and and, and actually Wong, uh, I find that that like he he almost changed them to so that he could give them more expression filled faces. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think Kevin McGuire probably does better than anybody is he he can load so much story into into the the expression on a character's face. Uh, in, in ways that that some of the most celebrated artists, you know, the hottest guys in the medium right now, can't even approach his ability to do that. Yeah, and 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 uh, it it really is a good blending of the artistic style to the writing style. Mm -hmm. uh, I you know I, I hate to be so full of praise for these books. I like to have some more criticism <laughs> sometimes, I, but but I really have very very little to criticize in this book. Not a lot actually happens, but because of the way it's written, it doesn't bother me. Uh, there, there were times where, you know, Brian Michael Bendis came under fire 
because nothing would happen in his books and they'd be very dialogue heavy, but the, the dialogue would be just kind of, you know, almost trying to create an episode of Seinfeld where nothing happens in the dialogue even. Mm -hmm. In this, the dialogue is taking a lot of the tropes over the years, particularly from Doctor Strange, and saying, isn't this ridiculous? <laughs> Yeah. And and I, yeah, sometimes it is. You know, when he's making fun of his relationship with Wang, uh, you know, you you really you call him your manservant, you know, that that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. I I myself have in the past criticized Bendis for exactly that same reason. There've been a lot of books of his I can think of where I at the end of 22 pages I just didn't feel like I got anywhere with with the story. And this there isn't a lot of plot progression. You feel the setup. It ends I think maybe a little too abruptly but but the stuff that you get is is so entertaining and so charming that you really are willing to forgive that in a book like this yeah and 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 it's i mean basically that's exactly it even even the byplay between uh dormammu and umar you know where uh you know when he turns away you're just like mother you know <laughs> I, I just i don't know it's so silly and so dumb again that's why yeah. i can't look at it as being part of the uh the, the universe proper. Yeah, but, but I think, uh, especially with, with those two, it's when you, when you consider just on the surface how absurd the concepts really are, or if not, at least the names, uh, <laughs> the ability to, to have a little fun with it, I think is vital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and although, I mean, there, there's been stories where they were very seriously told, and, and they've excelled at that too, but this, this you know, clearly Keith Giffen was brought in for this series to recreate the feeling from uh from his justice league books there was there was you know no question that was the goal and i think he succeeded and i think because he knew he was just doing five issues he went a little over the top on the humor but i don't think it fails because of that at all yeah i agree i'm, I, I'm with you completely i think there. if this was an ongoing series it, it, it would it would wear thin after a while yeah i think I'm kind of in the, the same boat with this as you were with, with their Justice League. I, I never really read the Defenders when these four were the, the primary team. Uh, that, was, that was before my time. I, I was aware that they were kind of the founding members. Uh, or Silver Surfer joined later, I think, right? Yeah, uh, he kind of came along. Uh, I'm trying to remember if he was they, – they, they originated them. Well, to, to give you my, my best memory of the history of them, before they actually formed them as the Defenders mm – -hmm. Uh, in an issue of the Submariner and an issue of the Hulk and possibly an issue of, of Doctor Strange, but I'm not certain about that, uh, they had crossovers where they basically faced off against the Avengers. Yeah. Uh, so they kind of created them as the Defenders then, although I don't think they ever called them that. Yeah, I think then, that was actually kind of the conceit, was that they weren't really a team. They just happened to keep having these adventures together. Right, and the Silver um, Surfer was included in that. Yeah, but then in Marvel feature where they f actually became the Defenders, uh, they were in the first three issues, and I'm not sure off the top of my head. I don't think the Silver Surfer was in any of those three. Mm -hmm. But then when they got their own series right after that, he started to appear yeah. once in a while, kind of when needed. At the time, I my my take on the Silver Surfer, at least until he got his ongoing that went for over a hundred issues, not even yeah, when he had his first ongoing that only went eighteen. I think Stan Lee was very protective of the character and didn't want him to be overused. So you didn't see him guest star in that many books, really. And and when he did, it was, you know, it was something special. So I think even in The Defenders, it was like, yeah, you could have him in there, but don't use him too much. 
Yeah, I, I, from what I know of the the period, that that kind of sounds right to me. I think what I like about this book, you know, this I th- probably was the, if not the first time, one of the first times I saw them acting together. This four, it really does kind of highlight just how absurd it is that these four particular characters are kind of thrust into this team together because they really have nothing in common. There's no reason for them to be uh, associated with each other uh, if you think about it logically. So so have fun with it and, and get as, as goofy as you can. Uh, and, and that's what I liked about this. It really did make me, I haven't read this in quite some time, it really does make me want to go out and read the, uh, the rest of the miniseries again. Yeah, same here. Which is, again, to me, the hallmark of a good book if you want Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm really giving credit to the artwork here. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. The story was solid. The artwork is solid. In particular, I really like the shot of uh, Dormammu and Umar, which is almost uh, a splash page type image. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, yeah. you know, the angle, the dynamism of it, it, it really is very solid. Where, yeah. where the other book left me a little cold on the artwork, this book, I, I really enjoy the artwork. And again, like I said, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Kevin McGuire and uh, and Chris Sotomayor is is one of those those workhorse colorists. He's done a lot of really great work over the years. And uh, this 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 was maybe that era where I was really first starting to uh, to notice certain colorists. And uh, I think a lot of it is he's uh, he he his techniques, the the different skills, the different computerized. Uh, I don't want to say effects because that sounds too much of a gimmick. But but the way he uses uh, his his computer tools to color uh, gives the book a very a very solid feel uh, that complements McGuire wonderfully. Yeah, it does, and and real real good work on the shading mm-hmm. on the characters. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, in in particular on on Silver Surfer, who you you know, with without that he would just be a very one a very two dimensional character. Yeah, yeah, he would look like any number of bad Silver Surfer drawings over the years that Mm -hmm. that shading and that coloring really is particularly vital to him so i the the cover i mean i don't think the cover is the greatest image it's like you know i I wouldn't be like seeking it out as a poster to hang up but it's just fun uh you you know you have dr strange who's basically casting a spell namor who's got his arms crossed looking very unapproachable and kind of looking at the reader with kind of a sneer on his face like you know i'm better than you (laughs) <laughs> uh, Silver Surfer is kind of looking up to the sky as if he's kind of spacing out and doesn't even really know where he is. And the Hulk uh, has kind of lost his patience and he started picking his nose. <laughs> right. uh, so it, the characters really come across. Uh, I got to go B plus on the cover. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's solid. Uh, the interior art, as we're saying, it really really marries with the uh, with the story very well. Uh, I don't know if I would like this again if it was an ongoing, but as a five-issue miniseries, I think this art is perfect for it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna give an A on the artwork inside. Uh, the story is certainly nothing of any weight. It doesn't have the scratch your head and think moments like the previous story did, but it's more more a uh, you know a, a self self-deprecating uh, look at the comics industry without being overly meta. And uh, it's it's funny. It made me laugh out loud. So I'm going to say B-plus on the story and overall give the book a B-plus. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very close to you there uh, as well. I agree. Uh, looking at that cover, um, it is, uh, it's like, like you said, I, I get what you're saying. It's not uh, something I'd put up as a poster, but the thing I absolutely love about it is you, you mentioned each one of the characters and what they're doing. And to me, just looking at that, it tells you absolutely everything you need to know about each one of these characters, at least in the context of this book. You know, this, you can look at this and you know that's what this Silver Surfer is like. That's what this Submariner is like. And the ability to do that in a single image is, to me, just a masterstroke. So so I I'll, I rank the cover maybe an A-, minus, maybe a little higher uh, than you did. Um, interior art also, I would I would have to say an A for, for all the same reasons. It's it's uh, energetic, it's it's very, very good storytelling, very good uh, emotive looks on these characters. Uh, and then that's for a book like this where so much of it is talking, that's vital. Story, um, I, I'm going to give the story a B here. I think it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's goofy. It's something that I enjoyed reading and I want to read the rest of it. That that maybe lack of, of weight maybe pulls it down just a little bit more for me uh, than for you. And like I said, I thought the ending was maybe just a, a tad too abrupt, which I don't know. I, I've kind of found that to be a an endemic problem in a lot of, uh, in a lot of books over the last, uh, 10 years or so, almost like they, I, I'm not necessarily in this book, but there've been a lot of books where I felt like they didn't realize they were on the last page when they were, when they were scripting <laughs> it and just had to cut it off. Uh, so overall I'm going to, I, I would give this a, a solid B plus. Yeah. So we we're in the same ballpark on this. Yeah. I'm just, I'm looking at the artwork I'm over and over again. And, uh, one of the things just, just, I think that bears mentioning is you have pages that have one picture on them and you have pages with 12 panels on them. It, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to the layout in this book. He it, It's totally done for storytelling purposes. Whatever needed to be done to tell the story, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that aspect of it. It's not by the numbers, by any stretch of the imagination. It's, right. There's not really a formula you can apply to this. Yeah. We meanwhile it's it's also you know not Neil Adams where you're bursting from one panel into the next either. It's so it's it it's very you know it, it's dissimilar from most other books. It it's uh, as far as how it's laid out and I like that. Yeah, I agree 100%. All right. Well, these were two good ones. I'm I'm glad we had a chance to discuss them and I'm me glad too. you had a this chance to come on here with me. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun. This was uh, this was great. It's nice to to get a a an excuse to go back and, and dig through some of these old books. Uh, you normally, I just have to just suck it up and admit. I felt like reading an old comic book. Now I, I can justify it a little bit. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue. Awesomeness. You can contact back to the bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.
You make me sound like a complete idiot. <laughs> well, wait a minute. 